Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's go to Psalm 68 this evening, if you'll turn there with me. And the song we're going to study tonight, it's one of the longer ones that we've looked at so far, 35 verses. So we're going to split this up. Um, And we'll look at the first 18 verses tonight. And then uh, next week, um, Daniel is going to be bringing the word to you. Pastor Daniel, uh, Krista and I are going to be away Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, in celebration of our 25th anniversary. She has, her suffering has been 25 years in length. So um, Daniel's going to bring the word. And then I think we've got the picnic out there for the on the 7th of July, and then we got a church conference, and so I think, VBS, I think we'll finish this psalm somewhere near the end of July. (laughs) Um, But Psalm 68, it's a praise song. It's praying for God to be victorious over his people's enemies, as he has in the past. Most theologians believe it was written uh, to be first sung when King David brought back the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom back to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You might remember that uh, great celebration that took place there. David led that procession. He was singing. He was even dancing uh, during that time with, with immeasurable joy. He was just so thankful that this powerful symbol, the Ark of the Covenant, this powerful symbol of God's presence among his people, it had returned to the house of worship in Jerusalem. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, like so many other Old Testament people, uh, places, things, um, they were a type. We call them a type or a symbol um, that pointed to a, a New Testament or, or a church age reality. Uh, the Ark was a, a type of Jesus Christ. It foreshadowed the Messiah. Can you think of various ways that might be true? When you think about the Ark of the Covenant and what we know about it, um, how, how might of it pointed to Christ, or what similarities do you see between the Ark of the Covenant and our Savior? Well, it symbolized God's presence, right? And how do we have a relationship with God, presence of God? And we actually have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, God's presence living in us. What was on top of the Ark? What was that location known as? The mercy seat. Yeah, the mercy seat. And our mercy, grace from God to us is in Jesus Christ. When they brought the ark so many times into battle, what happened? Victory, right? And we sing it all the time here. It's one of our favorite hymns. We, our victory is in Jesus. It's in Jesus Christ. So um, this psalm also has not just that backward glance, that historical application of the ark of the covenant ascending up to Jerusalem, to the tabernacle, but also has a future look toward when Jesus Christ, the one it pointed to, Uh, would rise from the grave and then ascend up into heaven. As Baptists, we don't celebrate the ascension like some other mainline Protestant or Christian denominations do. They sometimes give a whole Sunday to it. Um, But Christ going up to heaven after his resurrection, it's important 
because it had such meaningful impacts for our faith in him. In fact, the Apostle Paul even quotes the last verse we'll look at tonight, verse 18, uh, in the book of Ephesians to remind us why we need to do this, why we need to give attention to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Let's read Psalm 68, beginning in verse 1. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Let them exceedingly rejoice and sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him that writeth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary, the congregation has dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. And though ye have lion among the pots, it shall ye be as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, a high hill as the hill of Bashan. And why leap ye, high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000. Even thousands of angels, the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Heavenly Fathers, we come into your word tonight. We turn to this, at least the first part of this beautiful song you've given us in this beautiful hymnal you've given us. I pray that your Holy Spirit, who's present here in the lives of every single Jesus follower, everyone who's trusted him as Savior, Lord, may he reveal the truth that we have here. These are some powerful truths, um, powerful truths that will move us from fear to faith, powerful truths about um, what a joy it is to know your presence in our lives, what peace can be brought from that reality. Lord, and, and uh, opportunities to testify about how you've provided for us and how you've protected us. And God, right at the end there, we're reminded uh, with a very prophetic verse about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what he would do for us. And, and then what he, what he did at the end, and he ascended, and what that means for us until he returns. So God, show us these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses one to six uh, really are a prayer for God's presence, a prayer for his presence. First of all, we see the response of the presence of God uh, by those in rebellion. God, as David began this psalm here in verse one by, by quoting word for word almost the words of Moses in Numbers 10.35. If you've got a, a Bible that has cross-references, it probably points you to there in verse one. As Israel wandered in the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, every single time the ark would depart and lead the people, Moses would get up before it and he would say, verse one, he would say, rise up, Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let them that hate you flee before you. 
Almost exactly, word for word, verse 1. And then in verse 2, we find that this is what David's praying that the response of God's enemies would be. He uses two symbols there in verse 2, two metaphors. David prays that God's presence that was symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, it would cause the enemies of God to be uh, as fleeting, as transient, as smoke that just floats away, or, or like wax that melts before a fire. And this was a case in Israel's history, wasn't it? I mean, nations feared the presence of God among his people. Think about the walls of Jericho. It was no mighty siege with normal weapons of war. They marched around it, praised God. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant going around it as well. And what happened? The walls came down in that great city just because of the presence of God among his people. It was such a significant uh, symbol of God's power that other nations wanted to have it. At one point, the Philistines captured it. They desired to use it as a weapon of war. Without going into great detail, I don't know if you know about that account, but um, they wanted to get rid of it pretty quick uh, because it didn't belong to them. It belonged to God's people. Uh, God afflicted the entire nation with severe chronic hemorrhoids for, for weeks until they returned it. Um, Think about when Israel, they, they even fell to that same misunderstanding, uh, that they could use it as a weapon of war when, when they weren't living right for God and they would go into battle when God didn't tell them to, uh, the battle was starting to be lost and they would say, let's bring the ark like it was some kind of powerful talisman or something that could help win the war. Instead of putting their faith in God, they had put their faith in it. That's actually how it fell into the hands of the Philistines. We've got teenagers here. This might not apply to you, but you might have seen it. But most of our lifetimes, there's actually a Hollywood movie made about this, right? About somebody thinking that the Ark had such power, they wanted to use it as a weapon of war in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we fail to understand there's no power in and of itself in the Ark of the Covenant. The power was in the presence of God that the Ark symbolized. And the response of the wicked, the response of those who reject God, those who reject God's word, his will for their lives, today, it's the same. What do people do when God is present if they don't have a relationship with Jesus? Typically, they flee, just like it says right here. Instead of turning to God's grace, turning to his invitation for them to place their faith in him, they turn away from him. And this is going to continue. That's what most people will do. Uh, it even says in the book of Revelation, uh, despite all the judgments that are going on, uh, you know, the, in the uh, seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, all these things. Despite um, these God-directed and God-designed judgments that God's sending to urge people to turn to him, to repent and believe, what do the people then do, according to the book of Revelation? They curse God. They flee away from him, go up into the mountains and pray for the mountains to fall on them. They'd rather do that than actually turn to God's grace. Despite the power of his presence that they're seeing in natural phenomenon going all around them, despite the, that they actually recognize that he exists in their hearts, they don't turn to him. They're going to continue to flee from him until they experience what happens here at the end of verse 2. Let the wicked perish at the presence of God. That's the response of the wicked. But what about the response of those who are in relationship with God? What about God's presence for you and I, for Jesus' followers? Well, it's a very different response according to these verses, isn't it? Look at verse three. Uh, for those who have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, what does his presence bring us? We're glad. <laughs> it brings us joy. It says, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. 
And then in verse 4, what's the natural result of having joy in something? Well, you praise it. It doesn't matter if it's your favorite sports team, uh, your favorite musician, somebody you love. You're going to praise it. And that's what happens in verse 4. Sing unto God because he brings us joy, exceeding joy. Sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name. Jah or Yah is how you pronounce it in the Hebrew. Uh, That name of God, Yah, it's a contraction of the name Yahweh. It's just a shortened version of it. Um, He revealed to Moses that among his people he wanted to be known by by Yahweh, the one who is, the one who causes to be. And, and this contraction here, it's a somewhat rare name in Scripture. It's found a few other places. Um, this psalm, it's full. This psalm is full of different names for God. Why does God have David pen those words? Why doesn't he just say God? Why doesn't he just say Yahweh and use that all the time? I mean, uh, in verse 1, you see uh, God is the English word, but in Hebrew, it's Elohim in, in verse uh, 14. Uh, it says Almighty, that's the Hebrew name, El Shaddai. Uh, we had Yah right there in verse 4. He, he's Lord, Yahweh, in verse 16, all capitals. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. Uh, he's Lord, capital L, small case, O-R-D, in verse 19. That's the Hebrew name, Adonai. And he's Yahweh, Adonai, in verse 20. Why does God have so many names? Why does God have so many names that he's told us he wants to be called? Well, he's graciously given these names to us so that we know him. We have a God who wants to be known. We have a God who wants intimate relationship with us. He wants you and I to know every aspect about who he is and what he has done and what he's doing right now and what he's promised to do for you. And then in verse four, he commands us to respond to his presence with a joy that that erupts in, in an expression of praise to his names. Or they're told there, extol him that writeth on the heavens by his name. We do that here through different songs. You know, they might focus on the name Lord or focus on Jesus. Or sing one later on when we're done studying this passage together. And, And in order for us to praise him by these names, what do we have to do? We have to know. We have to know him by these names. We have to know who he has revealed himself to be in all these different precious names. Who is he? Verse 5 says he's a father to the fatherless. That was many of his people then. When you're talking about here in a moment, when he took them out of Egypt, there's a lot of orphans because of the suffering they went through. And God was a father to the fatherless. Um, That's many of us now. We might have lost our father because of death. We might have had a father, but he wasn't a parent or a dad who was following God's word and raising us right. So maybe we felt abandoned or were abandoned. We might have had a father or a parent who rejected us for our faith. Jesus promised that that would happen to some of his followers. But there's no one. There's no one who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior without a heavenly father, amen? No one. (laughs) If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you have a heavenly father. Verse five says he's also a judge or a defender. He's a protector of the widows. The same thing that caused her to be so many orphans. All the hardship they went through in Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, not only did it it cause her to be orphans, but also widows. And in the church of Jesus Christ, there's the same experience today. Again, maybe as a result of a death of a dear husband or or wife, maybe as a result of a spouse's rejection 
of your faith. But you've got a promised defender, don't you? <laughs> you do. Uh, aren't you glad that we have a father, that we have a, a defender, somebody who's faithful, will never leave us, never forsake us? Verse 6 says that. Uh, for those who are lonely, it says in verse 6 here, God setteth the solitary or the lonely in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious, they dwell in a dry land. So for anybody who's lonely, uh, who may feel or actually be abandoned, what does God do? He says he takes them and he places them in families. And that aspect of our salvation, that we are we're literally adopted into the family of God, that we're made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a massive reason for joy, like we found in, in verse 3. That's the presence of, of God, not just a wonderful song or chorus we sing, the family of God. It's a, a reality. That's what the church is to be, a, a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, never forsaken, never alone, God's presence. And because of this reality, we can, we can sing out like David does in Psalm 2710. He says, when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. The Lord will take care of me. Verse 6 reminds us of one more thing that God does for us. He brought out those which are bound with chains. Are you free tonight? Are you free because he did that for you? I mean, are you glad, exceedingly joyful that because of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ, you're no longer bound in the chains of sin and death eventually, but no, you've been freed. You've been freed to obey. You've been freed to live for him. You've been freed to eternal life. And so this is where David moves from this prayer uh, to praise. It's testimony time now in the rest of this passage in verses 7 to 18. And David brings us back to the very beginning of when God did just that for his people. He freed them. It says in verse 7, O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah. He doesn't even get going. He just says, you were there. Let's got to pause for a minute, Selah. Let me think on that. You were there when you brought us out. I've just got to pause and meditate on this praiseworthy thing. I have a God who provides. He guided us through our wilderness. I don't know what wilderness you're in. What wilderness you might have just come out of or you're heading into. But I know it's a feature of following Jesus in this world. You're probably going to be in one again. We're headed toward the promised land. But we ain't there yet, are we? Wilderness journeys, rarely fun. Usually pretty tough. But they're not all bad because they're a place where you get to know the Lord. Do you know why? He's there. <laughs> Look at verse 7. You went before your people. You marched through the wilderness. You led us. You guided us through this wilderness. This verse is probably a reference to how he guided them. Do you remember how he guided his people? What was it by day? A pillar of cloud and by night? A pillar of fire. You go like, well, I don't have those. You do. No, you do. You have them. As Christian, you have his presence, and you have his guidance in a way that they didn't have. You do. Uh, you have him living inside of you. They did not have that at that time. You have his guidance and his presence like they never had. I don't know if they even had the first four. If they did, that's what they had. They had the Pentateuch. Genesis, I don't think they did. I think he wrote that after. 
They had the word of God through Moses. They had the Ten Commandments. That's what they had. What do you have? 66 books, Genesis to Revelation to God. Is this not a fire? They had a couple of the first few books. We have the whole counsel of God. What does David say about it? It's a lamp for my feet. It's a light for my path. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, is my word, is it not like a fire? Yeah, it sure is when it's used in our lives. Is it a lamp for our feet, a light for our path? It is when we crack it open and click it on. Verses 8 and 9, David reminds God's people of how God rescued them from their bondage in Egypt, how he guided them to the land he promised them, providing for them all the way. Look at verse 8. It says, The earth shook, the heavens also dropped or dripped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And thou, you God, you did send a plentiful rain whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance. So we were your people when we were weary. And the rain mentioned in verse 9 is probably the literally wet stuff that helps our crops to grow so we have food. But back in verse 8, the heavens dropping or dripping is more likely a reference to that. What is it? Little white stuff on the ground every morning when they went out. They didn't have any food there in the desert. But every morning when they went outside, what did they find? Manna. Every, next day. You didn't have to take enough for today. You don't need any more for tomorrow. It'll be there tomorrow. That's how our God does. He provides that way. His faithfulness evidenced every day. You're going to have what you need. He'll provide it. And I'd love to have a time of testimony right now because this is what we've been talking about for the last three verses is how God has provided for us. And, and, and we don't have time to, in order to get everything done here. But you can do it. Don't let me stop you. Like right now, think of how God has provided for you today, this week. How has God provided? And testify in your heart right now while I'm talking to him. Let's take a moment. Maybe it's a couple years ago, but give him praise. I mean, this was thousands of years ago, and we're studying tonight and praising God for how has he provided for you? So important, because tomorrow when anxiety comes about, how are you going to take care of this, God? How are you going to meet this? This is why we go over this. This is why we're rehearsing it. So testify to God that he's been Jehovah Jireh, your provider, that every day his mercies are new. And look at verse 10. It says, your congregation has dwelt therein, or in it. In what? <laughs> in what? Well, they dwelt in the promised land. Eventually they got there, but I don't, that's not even really what he's talking about here. He's talking about the presence of God. You, we have dwelt in your presence. We have dwelt in your provision. <laughs> that's our life. We live, we live in your grace. We live in this, this beautiful generosity you give us. You're our benefactor. You've prepared and delivered goodness to the poor. Isn't that who they were? They're slaves in Egypt. They didn't have anything until they left. And all their neighbors gave them stuff. Go, get out of here. God provided for the poor. God sent them out of Egypt with a wealth of goods. They're wandering. They're a people with no land. That's a crazy thing. A people that don't have a land? What? And what did God do? God prepared a land. The land he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did he provide for them in the land? And they had houses that they didn't build. They had farmlands that they never tilled. They had vineyards they never planted or grew. God prepared for them. God provided for them. So it says in verse 10. Then we, the rest of the, chap, uh, the section we're going to look at, 11 to 18, we have a God who, who protects. I love this. Look at verse 11. The Lord gave the word. 
And great was a company that proclaimed it or that published it. And see, God called them a congregation back in verse 10. Called them a congregation. But here, here they're a company. The Hebrew is sabah. It's a military term. He turned slaves into soldiers. But isn't that what we're called to be as Jesus followers? We sing old hymn, onward Christian soldiers, right? An army of Christian soldiers who herald, who proclaim, who publish. Great was a, was a company. Great was this army who published. We published the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the young pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. God tells us in uh, Ephesians 6 that every day we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God because we're part of an army. As we go into battle, we learned in our study of that passage on Sunday evenings a couple months ago that our battle, it's not with the weapons of war for physical enemies. After putting on the armor of God, what do we take up? We take up the sword of the Spirit. What is that? Word of God. We take prayer and we advance in this world for his kingdom, winning others to his side, preparing them for the world to come. Just like verse 11, the Lord gave the word. We take it, and we're part of a great army that's proclaiming it. I hope you are. We sang it in this hymn just a little bit ago, O Church Arise. Our call to war, to love the captive soul. That's a weird kind of war, isn't it? That's what we're called to do. To rage against the captor. And with a sword, makes the wounded whole. That's a weird kind of weapon. (laughs) A weapon that heals, that's what this does. With a sword that makes the wounded whole, we fight with faith. We fight with valor, with great courage. You and I, the Church of Jesus Christ, an army bold that said there, whose battle cry is love, we reach out to those in darkness. In verse 12, it tells us the response. When we obey God, when we trust in his protection, what happens? Well, the kings of armies, our enemies, they flee apace. In the Hebrew, it literally means they flee, they flee. They retreat, they retreat. A double emphasis to encourage us. Fight on, you're on the winning side. Under his protection, verse 13, the King James has it, um, you were lying among the pots. There's probably some uh, relation to making metal and and brass and how it gets smudged up. And um, it's a really weird Hebrew word. And so most modern English versions uh, say when you lie among the sheepfolds, it could mean both, the Hebrew word. And it really doesn't matter because the interpretation and the application is the same. It's this, God took what was humble. Do you remember David? Was he always king? He was a shepherd. <laughs> he took what was lying among the sheepfolds. He took a humble shepherd. And what would you do? You took a humble, dirty, and capable people, and capable of helping themselves. And what would you do? You washed them clean. You transformed them from filth to beauty. Isn't that what God has done for us? who've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. He took David from shepherd to sovereign. He took his people from slaves to soldiers, then and now. Like he did in Zechariah chapter 3 to the high priest Joshua. He took off his filthy garments and, and God clothed him with the white robes of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the hymn of Solid Rock. This is, I'm dressed in his righteousness alone. Because of that, I'm faultless to stand before his throne. That's what God did. He protected us from ourselves. He protected us from our sins, from our filth. 
As verse 14 pictures, it talks about uh, when the Almighty scattered these kings, it was, it was white as a snow and salmon. His people, uh, Mount Salmon, his dark uh, cedar trees, it'd be kind of, I don't know if any of you have been to the South Dakota, to the Black Hills, right? But they kind of, I mean, it looks black. They're not really black. It's dark, dark green, except when winter came and snow would fall and it just turned to white. That's what he's referencing here in verse 14. That's what he's done for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. You were filthy. You were dark. You were black. And he made you white, as white as snow on Mount Salmon. It's a beautiful truth what he's done for us. Verses 15 to 16, as the ark nears ever closer to the tabernacle in Jerusalem, David speaks of the hill of God, Mount Zion. That's where Jerusalem sat, the, the palace and the tabernacle, eventually the temple on the highest point. And it says in verse 15, the hill of God, it says the hill of Bashan. Bashan was the highest hill, probably Mount Hermon, another name for Mount Hermon in Israel. A high hill as a hill of Bashan. He says, why leap ye high hills? This is a hill. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is the hill that God desires to dwell in. Hey, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So David speaks of Mount Zion here on which Jerusalem sat, on which the, where the ark is going. He says it's greater than the greatest, tallest, snow-covered peak in the area. And God could have chose that big peak. It's majestic. I've never seen it. I'd like to someday. But he could have chose the greatest peak in Israel, Mount Hermon, covered with snow, majestic, powerful. He could have chosen that as his earthly place of his presence, but he didn't. He chose Mount Zion in Jerusalem, just like he chose David. Small shepherd boy. Wasn't even brought in when Samuel came. Where's your sons? One of them's king. Wasn't even brought in there. Didn't even make the original selection process. And so may we never forget that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. May our humble faith in him always remember that man looks on the outside appearance, but God looks on what? Looks on the heart. Look at verse 17 in reference to God's protection. It says, the chariots of God, they're 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as he was in Sinai in the holy place. So we get a number of chariots, probably not a specific number of angels because we've got other places in scripture that talk about more. But what's the message? God has at his disposal uh, a mighty army of angelic messengers. They faithfully, they completely carry out his sovereign will. No disobedience, ultimate, immediate, complete obedience. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us as far as his protection goes. That's what David's praising him for, testifying of. Do you remember the account? One of my favorites uh, of Second Kings 6 where Elisha and his, his little protege, uh, prophet in training, Gehazi, they wake up one morning to find that the house that they spent the night in, it's now surrounded by an entire Syrian army, the whole army, surrounded, wanted to capture him, kill him. And do you remember what Elisha's response was to Gehazi's concern, would be putting it mildly? Gehazi was really upset. And Elisha prays, God, give Gehazi spiritual eyesight so he can see reality. And what was that reality? That surrounding that Syrian army, what was there? There's an army of angels that were surrounding them. The Syrian army was struck with, with blindness. And so what is God telling us? He's telling us what Elisha was telling Gehazi. Fear doesn't belong here. In verse 17, he's telling his church, fear doesn't belong here. 
One more verse, verse 18, and this is the one that calls us to go beyond the Ark of the Covenant, ascending up into Jerusalem to what it pointed to, Jesus' ascension for us and what that means for us. Um, So I'm going to ask you to uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4, all right? And we'll come right back here. We're almost done. But Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read a few verses there, starting verse 7. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't the end. We know that he's not still here. He did not die again. He lives forever. He ascended up into heaven. The end of the Gospels talk about that. The first chapter of Acts talks about that. Uh, The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on what Jesus did for us. On the cross, on the empty tomb. Uh, But the ascension, the ascension of Jesus up in heaven, it was God's proclamation of victory of that cross and empty tomb. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. It says, But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. There's the verse that's quoted here um, by Paul from Psalm 68, 18. Verse 9, And now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? And he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give these? For the perfecting or the completing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we're not anymore henceforth Children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is ahead, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all of us, we're fitly joined together, we're compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love." So according to God in this passage, what did the ascension of Jesus Christ do for you and I, for Jesus' followers? What did it provide us? Gifts. I mean, there's given, verse 7, gifts, verse 8, gave, verse 11, and of course, back in Psalm uh, 68, 18, it talks about that as well. What were these gifts for? Well, it says in verse 12, they're for the perfecting of you and I, for the saints, the, to make us complete, to conform us to the image of Christ. They were for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Where did these gifts come from? Holy Spirit, right? Isn't that what Jesus promised in the Gospels when he, he told his disciples, I'm going away? And they're like, what? No, go away. No, it's good. It's good for you that I'm going away. It's for your benefit, because when I do, I'm going to send you the giver of gifts. And I, he's going to be with you always. You, you think presence is important. You love my presence. You're testifying about it here in Psalm 68. He's going to be with you always. He's going to guide you. He's going to teach you. He'll give you the words to say when you need them. He's going to give his church gifts. Just have a few of them mentioned here. Other places in the New Testament talk about so many more spiritual gifts. Every single one of you, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit's indwelling you. He's given you at least one, maybe more. Sometimes they change. If you go to a different church, she might give you a different one. Whatever you need, it's for his church. He's given you these things. So let me pause and break into this nominating committee time, right? <laughs> I just came out of a meeting right before here. But he's given you gifts, church. I mean, I'm, this is not a shameless plug. This isn't begging. I'm not going to beg you. 
He's given you gifts, church. They're not, if they're not used, what's not getting done? The perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ is not being built up. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect those who need. Oh, you might be the ear. You might be the nose. We need an ear. We need a nose. We need a finger. We need, the whole body needs each other. And he's given us gifts. That's what the ascension means. That's why we should give attention to the ascension. Let's go back to um, here in, in Ephesians 4. Just one more thing. It says, when he ascended up on high, verse 8, he led captivity captive. It's also part of Psalm 68, 18. What does that mean? Well, he took those who Ephesians 4 9 said were in the lower parts of the earth, those in the place Jesus referred to as Abraham's bosom and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and he brought them with him to heaven. That was a pretty important impact for those who are Jesus followers. His ascension has an incredible impact for us. Let's go back to Psalm 68, and we'll finish with that verse. Thou hast ascended, verse 18, on high. Talking about Jesus. Way back here in the Psalms. Thou hast led captivity captive. You've received gifts for men. Even for rebellious ones. That's all of us. That's what we were. That's what we were. You've received gifts for men. And that's where Jesus is right now, at the right hand of God. There he reigns till he returns for us. And until then, he's providing for us. He's protecting us. And it's from that ascended position of faith that he calls us through his Holy Spirit to come and follow him, to trust him as our Savior. It's right there that he, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom, taking, as Psalm 68, 18 says here, taking people who are rebellious and transforming them into the redeemed. I hope this prophetic, messianic psalm of praise has provided you with reasons to praise him tonight. Maybe you find yourself in a wilderness. He's there. He's there. There's no reason to fear. Maybe you're worried about whether you'll have enough tomorrow. Will he provide tomorrow? Well, he always has. He always will. There's some threat to you that you fear. Who goes before you? Elohim. El Shaddai, Jah, Adonai, Yahweh, the one who is, never had a beginning, never had an end. The one who causes to be, the one who gave you life. He's going to sustain it. He's your protector. You've got an army of angels surrounding your threat, surrounding your need. And what does that mean? I asked Tommy and the praise team to come up. What does it mean? It means this is not a place of fear. Fear don't belong here. So if that's the case, can we turn this into a place of faith tonight, and we do that by turning it into a place of praise together.